Welcome to Your Path to Real Wealth, where we explore how to cultivate real wealth, which is so much more than money. It's the sum quality of our values, relationships, health, sense of purpose, time, charitable giving, legacy, and more. Your path to real wealth begins now. Welcome to our show today. I'm Jeff Brimhall from Blue Barn Wealth, and I'm here with my co-host, Benjamin Cummings. How are you doing today, Ben? Yeah, we're good. Yeah, glad to be here. Who do we have on with us today? We have a real treat today. We've got Todd Urkus joining us. Todd and I used to work together at St. Joseph's University out in Philadelphia, and I'm glad he's agreed to join our show today. Thanks, Todd. Yeah, thanks, Benjamin. Thanks, Jeff. I'm really happy to be here. Great. So I wanted to have Todd on our show. He's got such a great background. He studied economics at the Wharton School and then went on to become an actuary and eventually even served as the chief actuary of Lincoln Financial Group. He's always had a desire to teach, though, and he was fortunate enough to land a faculty position at St. Joseph's University, which is where I was teaching at the time as well. And he continues to teach there in finance and insurance. And I remember hearing students all the time say how much they loved having Todd as a professor. It was always inspirational to see students in his office. And he was just a great way. He had a great way of explaining concepts that the students were able to understand. So glad to have him here. Yeah, thanks, Benjamin. That's very nice for you to say. I hope that uh, it's been as good since you've been gone, but I do appreciate the kind words. Thank you very much. So Todd doesn't just want to teach in the classroom, but he's also wanted to find ways to expand that reach of being able to help others. And so he's authored a book, two books actually, where he breaks down these complex financial concepts in a way that people can understand it. So his first book is what insurance companies don't want you to know. And insiders, an insider shows you how to win at insurance. And just as the title states, full of practical advice about insurance, which is great. His latest book, Everything a College Student Needs to Know About Personal Finance, but doesn't want to ask, just as practical about personal finance, which is just great. Maybe Todd, just to kick this off, what do you want listeners to know about your books? So yeah, thanks for having me on and thanks for the book plugs. I appreciate it. The The main reason I wrote the books is because I feel like these are both topics that are not really discussed very much. People, they don't generally understand insurance. And when they do talk to somebody about insurance, it's almost always tr somebody trying to sell them something. Uh, given that I worked in insurance for over 25 years, I felt like I had something to offer to the average person. And what I did is I really just took experiences of questions that people had asked me. You know, I'm sure you understand it. It probably happens to you too. You know, oh, you worked in insurance. Oh, yeah. You know what? I have this policy and can you help me with it? So that's sort of what I, what I did with the book. And the, with the college student personal finance one, the, it was a very interesting story. We actually had the students from our student senate at St. Joe's. They came to the finance department and actually asked us if we would run a personal finance class. And I had had this idea sort of ruminating in the back of my mind about maybe writing that second book as if the first book wasn't painful enough. But I, I felt like, again, there was something I could do there. And I took a clue from my first book and I went out and interviewed about 25 recent college graduates from many from St. Joe's, but also some from other country, other schools across the country. That's and cool. I used their stories to explain how they've done well and some of the things where they've struggled with regard to personal finance. 
And so both written for the average person, and they're also hopefully accessible so people can look at them and use them as a resource that's when they need this kind of information down the road. Oh, love that. Love that. Well, maybe we could dive into the topic of that first book on insurance. And, and you talk about how to win at insurance. So maybe we could just start with that as, you know, how would you describe the purpose of insurance or as you say, how to win at insurance? Sure, sure. So it was the book idea. It was interesting. I was on a plane. So prior to working at Lincoln Financial, actually after working at Lincoln Financial, I worked as a consultant for a bunch of years before I came to St. Joe's. And so as you might expect, being a consultant, you travel on planes a lot. And I was on a plane and I don't really know where the colonel came from, but I wrote in my day book, my, my calendar, this idea where I felt like I could explain insurance and sort of how to win and how to like win using insurance. And so one of the things about it was I thought about this, the idea of this restaurant example. And because a lot of people don't understand why insurance companies ask you all those questions right? It's like, it's, you want to file for, you want to try to get a life insurance policy. And all of a sudden they want to know like everything about you. And most people think they're just trying to pull one off or charge you as much as possible. But what I was thinking about was I came up with this idea of this all you can eat restaurant. And imagine you walk into the all you can eat restaurant and you sit down and they give you the menu and everybody's around there eating and say, the food smells good and it seems great. And then, but there's no prices. And let's say the waiter or waitress comes in, the server comes in and says, well, you know, can I just ask you a few questions? You know, when's the last time you ate? How hungry are you? What did you have last time you were here or something like that? And the idea there is what are they trying to do? Well, what they're trying to do is understand how much food you're going to consume and while you're there. If it's an all-you-can-eat, obviously, if you're a very hungry person, you're likely to eat more than somebody who had, let's say, a relatively big snack a couple, you know, a little bit before that. Or if you happen to be a larger person, would tend to eat more than, let's say, a child or a smaller person. So what the restaurant could do is they could use those characteristics to determine how much you're going to eat. And then they would be able to, you know, hopefully charge enough and they would have to, let's say, give you the price up front so that they would be able to cover their costs and all that. And that's very much what insurance companies do. We call it underwriting. And what they're doing is they're asking you these questions to try to figure out how much insurance you're going to use. Most people don't get insurance because you're buying something for a promise, right? If I go and buy a TV, I bring it home. I know if it works. I know if I like it. With insurance, you buy something and you get nothing. Like, what the heck is that? <laughs> right. You get nothing. So like a lot of people feel like you're just wasting the money, right? So when the concept that I would like people to understand and is really the theme of that first book is what is really the purpose of insurance and what is winning. And the purpose of insurance, in my view, is to protect against financial ruin. So we don't want to use insurance to make money. If, we're, if we go in and we are acting like we're the hungriest people in that restaurant, then the insurance company is going to charge you more for, what you, for the insurance because they're trying to guess, estimate how much insurance you're going to use.
right? Like the restaurant is trying to estimate how many food, how much food you're going to eat. What you want is you want to be truthful, right? We never lie because if you lie, they can essentially not give you the insurance down the road because you're committing essentially fraud. Yeah. So we want to tell the truth, but we want to use, we want to show the insurance company we're going to use as little insurance as possible to get the best price and make sure that we have enough insurance so that if that terrible thing happens, we are not ruined financially. And that's really the theme of that book. I love that. I love that. But maybe what are some ways that somebody shows that they're not very hungry for insurance? Yeah. So that's a great question. So um, it's, and a lot of it is a little bit counterintuitive, which is again, why a lot of us fall into these traps. The way that you want to get insurance, the best time to get insurance is when you don't need it. And for example, if I'm looking at, let's say, disability insurance, disability insurance is one that a lot of young people overlook. Let's say somebody comes out of college, they've been working for a couple of years, maybe they're working in the gig economy, maybe they're working for a non-traditional employer or something like that, that doesn't offer disability insurance. Well, the best time to apply for disability insurance is when you're young and healthy because disability insurance, it pays when somebody is sick or injured and can't work for a long period of time. So of course, young people who are healthy are going to have a very low incidence of being sick or injured for a year or two years or three years. And why do we want disability insurance? Well, because most people, unless you happen to be fabulously wealthy, they rely on their own income. So if you get sick or injured and you're relying on your own income and you don't have disability insurance, and let's say, God forbid, it's a bad, bad injury where you can't work for a year or two, that's financial ruin. When are you, where are you going to get your money from? You either have to go back and live with the relative or live with the friend or get assistance from the government. And the whole point of insurance is to get past, get past the problem, the issue on, and be still be financially sound because you're going to have enough to deal with as it is just trying to recover and get better. No, I love that. Love that. What are, you've kind of already touched on this a little bit, but what are some common mistakes that people make when they get insurance? So a lot of people use their insurance too much. If you think about, let's say car insurance, right? Car insurance has a deductible. What the deductible means is you pay the first amount of any claim. And the reason why insurance companies use the deductible and why people you know, have a deductible is essentially if you, the, the person, the insured, if I pay a little bit of every claim, it costs the insurance company less money and it impacts my auto insurance. Now, of course, let's go back to the first conversation, right? What's an auto insurer going to look at when they're trying to figure out how much to charge you for auto insurance? Well, one is they're going to look at your history, right? Have you been in accidents before? Do you speed a lot? Do you, have, do you live in an area that has a lot of, let's say, car theft for whatever reason? So, what you can do is like, let's say you have a small fender bender and it's a thousand dollars. Let's say you have a $500 deductible, meaning you're going to pay the first $500, but let's say it's a thousand dollars. 
that your car, you get a little fender bender, obviously it would have to be a pretty small scratch because it's, darn, it's pretty yeah, expensive to get your car fixed. But let's just say it was $1,000, bear with me. So now you have a choice. Most people would be like, oh, well, it's $1,000. I'm going to go get that $1,000 from the insurance company. So you go and make the, you pay the $500 as your deductible. The insurance company chips in $500. And then what they do is they go in and say, okay, that's claim number one. And then if you keep doing that, the more you have a claim history, the more they're going to be thinking, well, look, this person's going to be a larger eater. So therefore, I need to charge that person more. So I like to think of my insurance, in particular, my car insurance, for the big claims. You know, I backed into my, I, like stupid, I backed out of my garage and hit my other car. So it was Yikes. not just my car I had to pay for, but it was the other, my, my wife's car too. She was not happy. And so all of a sudden now it's three, four, five thousand dollars and yeah, now it's worth it because look, that's what I'm, I, you know, that's a hard amount of money to afford. And I want to, you know, that's why you have insurance in the first place. So I'm not saying never use your insurance. I'm just saying use your insurance for the big stuff and don't think of insurance as a money-making idea. The best thing you can do, like ideally, right, is that you pay the insurance premium and you never use it. Now, again, that's totally upside down, right? From what everybody would think, you just got totally ripped off. But no, you did not have that unfortunate event. And your money is put together with all the other people to pay for that one or two or five or small number of people that have that really bad event. I personally would rather not have the event, lose a little bit of money, be financially covered if I have that terrible event and get that peace of mind that I'm going to be okay. Yeah, great point. So on deductibles, do you have a recommendation? Do you recommend a higher deductible then for like auto policies and homeowners policies? Do you generally recommend a certain level? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I generally recommend the highest deductible you can afford. So if you happen to be somebody who is of modest financial means, then and a $500 deductible is going to mean you can't get it fixed because you don't have that money, then we should be talking about my second book, by the way, <laughs> saving some money, or you should be talking to my friends here, Jeff and Benjamin. But if you don't want to have a deductible that you can't afford, right? So sure, I could get a $1,000, $2,000 deductible, which makes my auto insurance less, but then I get in that accident and I don't have the $2,000. That's not, that's silly, right? We're not going to do that. So I have like a, I think a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars. Um, I tend to try to make it as high as possible because that saves on the overall. Plus, it gives me that incentive not to just go out and essentially pay for it myself when I back into things that I'm not supposed to back into. Yeah, that's helpful. <laughs> well, maybe just on this idea of deductible, I you hit on the idea that sometimes people have to decide. Well, do I file a claim or not? Let's say our deductible is a thousand. But then the repairs are going to be, I don't know, $1,500. Is it better to make a claim because it's above the deductible or is it better to hold off? Well, it really just depends on whether you can afford it, right? So if, if I have a $1,000 deductible and I have a $1,500 claim, personally, I'm already going to pay the 1000 So I would probably just chip in the extra 500 and then go and try to deal with it outside of the insurance company. Now, you got to be careful because sometimes that can be an issue when, you know, 
it does sometimes get reported. So when you go and get like an estimate, um, if you tell them your insurance information, they generally will report it to the insurance company. Uh-oh. So not, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to say lie, but you don't necessarily have to go to a repair shop and say, oh, hey, here's all my insurance information. You can say, oh, hey, I have this issue. Could you please tell me how much it would co- cost to, to fix it? By the way, if you tell them that you're paying cash and you're not going to necessarily go through insurance companies, it's pretty common that you'll get some level of a discount because for two reasons. One, I think they prefer the cash up front, but number two, then they don't have to do all the paperwork and all the extra back and forth with the insurance companies. So you could go in and that $1,500 claim could turn into a $1,200 claim and that'll make it pretty obvious. It really just sort of depends again on on how, what you can afford. Cause the whole point, we don't wanna have insurance and be afraid to use it, right? We definitely yeah. want to use it when we need it, but we just want to make that financially good decision and try to make sure that the insurance company doesn't see you as a large eater. And the more claims you make, the more they're going to see you as a larger eater. Oh, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I want to transition a little bit to shift to life insurance because that's a little different of an sure. eating situation. <laughs> <laughs> the only time we're eating at the life insurance restaurant is when we die. So so how yeah. do you decide how much? Like, What are the decisions involved in life insurance and particularly how much we need? Yeah, so life insurance is interesting. Um, and and no no offense, guys. I, you guys do. I don't know if you sell life insurance or not, but no. you know, I'm- well, I we, want to, like, we want to make sure people, are, just so that you're aware, we want to make sure people are covered on life insurance, but we don't sell it ourselves. Yeah, right. So I think life insurance gets pushed too much. The main, one of the things I do in the book, and I feel it's really important, is I go through every type of major insurance, and I have a very simple three questions. And if you answer them yes, then you need to look at that insurance. And if you answer them no, then you don't need it. And the first most important life insurance question is, does anybody rely on you financially? And that's really the key. So I get students who come to me all the time and they're 22 or 23 or 25 recent graduates. And they're asking me the same question. How much life insurance do I need? And then my question, hopefully not unsurprisingly based on what I've said so far, is do you I my my question back is do you have disability insurance? Because disability insurance is much more important when you're 23, 24, 25 than life insurance, because most 20 young people don't have somebody who's financially dependent on them. Now, of course, some could be married or they could have children, and then of course you would need it. So I have sort of two rules of thumb. Number one, you want to have you only want to have life insurance if you have somebody who's dependent on you. And then number two, you never want to skimp on the life insurance. You want it to have enough of a face so that the person you're trying to protect is going to be okay financially. So what I recommend to, let's say, younger people, let's say people who are in their 30s, maybe they're married and they have a single single child or a couple children, is you want to be able to leave And by the way, don't forget the spouse, right? A lot of people think about the man, but it should be both people, right? So if it's no matter what the sex is, the person who is working and the person who is not working, 
or let's say they're both working, whatever the situation is, both people should probably need life insurance. And what you're looking at is you're saying, if that person's income was no longer there, what lump sum amount of money would be enough for the other person and the dependents to be okay financially? That's my theme, right? To be okay financially. So what I like to do, if you're talking about somebody who's in their 30s, is because it's so long, right? It's a 30-year period, yeah. is I like to think of it as you need enough money so that at a reasonable rate of interest, let's say 3 or 4%, there's enough income for the family to continue. So for example, when I was in my 30s, and my wife, we had we have three kids, and my wife worked until we had our second, and then she stayed home to raise the children. I had four million dollars on my life because I thought four million made sense because that would be like let's say one hundred and sixty thousand dollars a year at four percent, and that probably would be enough so she wouldn't have to eat into the principal. And then of course over time she could eat into the principal and. You know, it's a long period of time. Now, what a lot of people say is, well, that's crazy expensive. I don't know if I can afford that. And that's that for me is where people start getting, they start making mistakes and they start thinking about, well, I'm going to lower the amount in order to make it more affordable. And what I would recommend is you keep the large amount, but you focus on term insurance rather than whole life insurance. Term insurance is going to be much more affordable. And because what we're trying to do is protect while those dependents are dependent on you, right? Let's say you're three, four, five, six year old children, you can use 15 or 20 year term, which is going to be a lot less expensive, a lot more affordable than whole life insurance. And remember, there's a lot of good reasons to do whole life, okay? I'm not against whole life insurance in just on its fact. But if you're talking about whole life insurance, you are paying for insurance that's going to get paid off. So if you have $4 million, that insurance company has to fund that $4 million that they're going to pay you back, or they're going to pay you on the life insurance, excuse me. But if I'm 35... And let's say I have five-year-old children. My, my youngest is five years old. If I get 15-year term, the likelihood of me passing away prematurely between 35 and 50 is pretty small, which makes the price a lot, assuming somebody's healthy, makes the price a lot more affordable. That's what, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, this is why we need to get ahead of our insurance needs. We can't wait until we're 50 and we decide, oh, I want to now get insurance or 60. I'd much rather get it when I'm young where I can, where it can be a lot more affordable. So on, on a life insurance perspective, I, I feel like large amounts, term insurance to keep it affordable and focus on what's the time period that you need protection. And then once that's done, you're done. So although it was a little mentally challenging, I will tell you, when I was, I think it was like two or three or four years ago, my 15-year term insurance expired. And at this point, I have no life insurance. And you might sit there and go, but what? You have no life insurance? Well, my kids are all working. They're out. They're off the payroll. 
And my wife and I, we're okay financially. I've funded my retirement plan. We have a good amount of money there. So if I would unfortunately pass away, she would have that money that she could use to, to retire. And she has her own retirement accounts as well. So I'm not going to buy insurance just to have insurance because I don't want to pay for something that I don't need. Now, I like that a lot. Todd, as I was listening, I was thinking about the difference between term and whole and relating it to your restaurant example. And it's almost kind of like term is when you go to the restaurant and you're like, well, I'm not really hungry. Can I hang out here for a couple hours? And I might eat something I might not. Praise. And then, then they kind of say, all right, well, we won't charge you very much because you might leave and not have eaten anything. Whereas with right. the whole policy, you're like, I'm going to have dinner. I just don't know when I'm going to have dinner. And so let me know how much it's going to cost is the difference between the two. Yes. Sounds, that's a good way to think of it. I like that restaurant example. That's fun. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for describing a little bit about that life insurance, Todd. And you have talked about home auto just briefly and life insurance and disability. Obviously, you feel strongly about that. Are there any other types of insurance you talk about in your book? You said you talked about kind of the main areas of insurance. Are those the primary ones? Yeah, those are the major ones. The other ones I like to talk about is long-term care. Long-term care seems to get a lot of because it, you know it's, it's obviously a very scary time for a lot of people where they are getting to a point where they have to, maybe they're older and, or the, maybe their parents have, they've been seeing it with their parents. I know my parents are both 80. So I'm starting to see things that I'm not looking forward to happening down the future. They're doing pretty well, but you know, as it, as people get older, it's harder and harder to take care of themselves. And so a, a lot of people don't want to be a burden on their children and they don't want to be, they want to have enough money to be able to pay for those kind of situations where we need, they might need to pay somebody to do some of the necessities of life. And long-term care, I think is a good product, but people have to go into it with their eyes open. A couple important things. Number one, unlike a lot of insurance, i.e., let's say life insurance and disability insurance, long-term care rates are not fixed and guaranteed. So when you buy life insurance and that term policy we were talking about or whole life, your payments for the next 15 years are going to guarantee they're not going to change, right? The insurance company will tell you what they are in advance, and that's what you'll pay. Long-term care looks like that. Most of the time, it is a level premium. But the fine print, and this has happened in particular recently, is that if the insurance company doesn't have enough money, they can raise the premium, but they have to raise it on everybody, in everybody who's in that same age group. So what had happened years ago when long-term care first came out is these insurance companies, and I, I used to work for an insurance company, so I'll take a little bit of the blame, although we didn't really write long-term care. We had bad assumptions. We didn't realize that people were going to be uh, live as long as they are starting to live now. There's a lot more people that will be in a situation where they need somebody to give care to them for a longer period of time than expected. And then the two things that were most important is the interest rates that we lived with over the last 10 to 15 years that have been historically low. Nobody anticipated those. And then also people are holding on to their policies more. So the insurance companies are paying out more. So there's mm -hmm. been situations where people have been hit with very large premium increases, which I think is very unfair. I, I don't like the policy structure. I think the insurance companies are their big companies. 
they shouldn't be able to raise rates because they made bad assumptions, but that's what is in the policies. So I just want to make sure people are aware when you buy that long-term care policy that you know that it's possible down the road if, again, if things happen, the insurance company might raise the rates. The other thing is that we never want to buy insurance that we don't need because the insurance company is going to need to get that money, right? They're going to charge you enough for what they think you're going to eat. So it's not like they're going to just be like, oh yeah, hey, here's free food or free insurance. They're going to charge you what they expect to pay. So if you have saved for retirement and you have a very big nest egg, million, millions of dollars, then you can use that money to pay for your long-term care expenses if you need it. Now it's a trade-off, right? Some people will say, but wait, I want to pass that money off to my heirs and I would rather pay for the long-term care over time. Perfectly fine. But some people might say, oh, I never thought of it that way. Uh, if I do get sick and maybe it costs me $500,000 or something, $150,000 a year for care in a nursing home, and you know, let's say I'm there for four or five or six years, so that's like $700,000, but I have a $2 million estate, now maybe I don't want to pay for something because I'm still going to be giving a substantial estate to my heirs. And I don't need to buy insurance for something that I may never use. Because if you pass away or you don't, you don't need that level of care, then you're paying essentially for the insurance company to expect hundreds of thousands of dollars that you're going to have to pay. They're going to have to pay. And why not keep that money in your account, right? Because you're going to be paying those premiums every year. You know, somebody who's 50, you could be paying those premiums monthly for 30 years. That's a lot of money that could just be sitting in your account. So again, it's, I'm not saying it's a bad policy. I, the policies now are much, much better than they were before. They're much better priced. I don't expect there's going to be large rate increases, but I could have said this 25 years ago and said the exact same thing. So, I mean, nobody really knows. But I, I, again, I just think it's important that people go in with their eyes open there. That's helpful. Thank you so much. We focused mostly on insurance to, as you said, protect from a catastrophic event and financial ruin. And But some people use insurance for investments. And we'd love to have you back on another time to maybe talk about using life insurance, permanent life insurance as an investment vehicle and or annuities, sure. which are an insurance product as an investment vehicle. I and love talking be, about annuities. Good. I'd love to have you back on to talk about those things at some point. So thank you. And I think uh, Benjamin has a couple of additional questions for you. Yeah, this is this has been great, Todd. I've loved hearing your thoughts. It, it's fun to think about how that restaurant example applies in the different domains of insurance. So I, I like that. It, it makes it very palatable, much more understandable for insurance. But as we wrap up, I wanted to talk about your transition from an insurance executive. You had a wealth of experience in, in the, the corporate side of things. You were a consultant and then you ended up in academia. Maybe if you could talk a little about what, what led to that change from corporate America to academia and kind of how has that impacted your view of success and happiness? Yeah, it's uh, if I hadn't done it, I wouldn't have met you, Benjamin. So I'm really happy that I did <laughs> do it because you know it's been really great to to be uh, to be acquainted with you. So I've always thought I wanted to teach at some point in my career. I, you know, when I was in college, I tutored. Uh, when I worked as a consultant, I felt like sometimes I was explaining things to people 
that were these weirdo actuarial things. And we probably should have mentioned this earlier. Actuaries, we do the sort of, it's sort of the math of insurance. It's the business math of insurance. And it can be very technical and boring and very detailed. And I've always felt like I, when I was working as an actuary, I could speak to the most technical actuaries and we could talk actuary speak. And then I could talk to the senior level managers and try to explain some of these concepts in ways that people hopefully would get it. And I enjoyed doing that. I felt like I was reasonably successful at it. And so when I was in my mid forties, this is like more than 10 years ago, I was actually early forties, let's say, I started networking and it was really just more laying the groundwork, right? I was more what's out there, what could I possibly do? And I was meeting with actuarial science departments because I figured number one, living in Philadelphia, I think we around me is about 20 or 20 different colleges, very dense in the areas that where I live out in the suburbs, the Western suburbs of Philadelphia. And so I figured, let's start making some relationships because that's good business, right? Good business is meeting people, making relationships, and then we'll see where it goes in 10, 15 years from now when I might start teaching when I retire, right? So I met a few people. I had some nice coffees and some lunches and it was all going fine. And I had building up my Rolodex. And then I got an announcement that there was a gentleman who left one of the companies that I was at, uh, at uh, Towers Watson, and he had gone to St. Joseph's University and he was going to be the executive director of their insurance program. His name was Mike Angelino. And so I got an introduction from somebody at my company who knew him and asked if we could meet and we met at Starbucks. And I remember it really well. You know, he asked me about my, what I was doing and all that. He was an actuary prior to moving to taking this executive director position at St. Joe's. And I remember him pointing a finger at me and saying, you're the kind of person we need at St. Joseph's University. And I felt like it was like I was in the army. It was like, I'm at the army recruiting desk, right? And they're like, <laughs> come and come and volunteer or whatever. And I was like, oh yeah, it sounds interesting. I'm obviously happy with what I'm doing and I have a family and everything's going fine. And so then we just sort of agreed to stay in touch. And then I got an email about, I think it was right around Christmas, right around this time of year. And it was like, are you interested in trying to do a class at night? We're, we're looking for an adjunct professor who's somebody who just teaches classes here and there. And would you be willing to take this Thursday night class? And I remember telling my wife, it's like, I think this is way too early, but I do think this is something that I want to try. And like, why not try it? Right. I mean, we always want to try before we want to, before we buy. Right. I tell my students when they're trying to figure out a major. I'm like, you don't go to the ice cream place where you that has all these different flavors and you just pick some weird random um, ice cream cone flavor and then get a half gallon of it without trying it, right? I mean, you want to go in and get that little tiny scoop. I love those little spoons. And then take, take a little bite of it and see if you like it before you do it. And so my wife was very supportive and we tried. So I said, yeah, let's do it. And I just loved it. I loved it. It was even though I was working full time and I was doing this at night and it was that extra burden. It just was like, it sort of gives me chills. It was like, I could just see this is definitely where I want to be. This is my calling. This is something, not only do I feel like I'm reasonably good at it, 
I enjoyed it. It was just fun. And then it got me thinking about my day job, really, to tell you the truth. You know how they say it's like being aware is so important. And I was like, I don't feel this way about being an actuary anymore. I mean, I was doing fine. I was running a Philadelphia office. I was traveling a ton. I was meeting people. There were plenty of parts that I enjoyed about it. It wasn't that I hated it, but I didn't get that feeling. I didn't get that pure feeling of this is where I, this is where I should be. And so it was weird as I was sort of kind of thinking that as we got towards the end of the semester, the chair of the department said, hey, by the way, we have this full-time position. It's called a visiting professor. Are you interested in applying for it? And I was, and I remember going home and just being like, I don't know what to do. I mean, this is so hard. I mean, I, it's something I loved. It was a totally different lifestyle. It was a totally different pay level. Uh, in fact, during the interview, one of the hardest comment, the hardest question for me was, you do know what this job pays, right? <laughs> and I remember like the whole room, I was laughing, but the whole room was not laughing. I was the only one laughing because they knew as an insurance executive, I was making a heck of a lot more than what they were going to pay me. Fortunately, I had done well enough and we had saved a good amount of money so that financially we could do it. It was going to be a different lifestyle, right? I mean, we weren't going to be doing the kind of spending that we were doing while I was, when I was working as an executive, but we yeah. would, we'd be fine. I mean, good health insurance. And even though the money, the pay is relatively low, it's still, a, it's a fine salary. Um, yeah. And so, you know, with a lot of thought with my wife and a little bit of sort of us getting together and thinking about it, we decided to go for it. And it's been the best decision I ever made. I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's, I can't even think about going back. It's just every day going in and just feeling blessed to be with these students who are just want to know so much stuff. And it's just, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, it's my dream job. It really is. And I love my summers off. And I love being a college student from the perspective of that we get a lot of days at, that we don't aren't at school. But I also like the fact that I challenge them. I have very high standards. Nobody thinks of me as the easy professor, but I also feel learned. And I try to, I almost treat them like they're my clients, where my job, I want to do that 110% job for them. And I want them to come out and think, yeah, that was a good class. Like I really got what, I really learned something here. And you're just like, I, again, insurance is important. Me working for an insurance company, helping insurance companies stay in business is important, but dealing with young people and helping them grow and helping them learn. I mean, that's just like, what gets better than that? I love that. Todd, this has been great. This has been so fun to, to chat about this. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's it's a great podcast and I appreciate you doing it. And I look forward to listening to future episodes. I love it. Maybe our last question, Todd, what is real wealth to you? So it's somewhat related to that last story. To me, the reason why a person looks for or achieves or tries to achieve wealth is so that they can then go and make a difference. And so I think real wealth is putting yourself in a position 
where you can do what you want to do to make a difference in other people's lives. And some of that is insurance, right? We want to be protected. I still have plenty of insurance. We, you know, want to make sure that if that really bad thing happens that I'm, which heaven forbid, I hope it doesn't. But if it does, I want to make sure that myself, my family are protected. But it also means pursuing your dream and being happy and being aware. And I, I can't understate, I'm sorry, I can't overstate the, when you're in the middle of that corporate grind, you just don't see it. You don't see the stress you're under. You don't see, you focus on the things to get you through the day. And when you find that passion, it's just so enlightening. It's just so great to wake up and be like, yeah, there's stuff about my job I don't like. Don't get me wrong, but there's so much more I love. And to me, that's real wealth. Be able to actually go and do what you really want to do and make a difference. That's great. That's great, Todd. Thanks. Again, thanks for your time. This has been a ton of fun. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for joining. I hope it's been beneficial. And if you've liked what you've heard, make sure you share this. And we'd love to chat again with Todd again in the future. Thank you for listening to Your Path to Real Wealth from Blue Barn Wealth. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends and click the subscribe button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and any guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Blue Barn Wealth. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for personalized investment advice. Because everyone's situation is unique, always seek the advice of a qualified financial professional with any questions you may have.